6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Titus. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded, in all things showing themselves a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity. Likewise, exhort to be uh, uh, showing thyself a pattern of good works. The word pattern is tupos, from which we get the word type, a pattern, an exemplar. And uh, Paul wrote more about Titus the example than Titus the exhorter. We're to be examples. In doctrine showing uncorruptness, complete conformity to the word of God. That's That's our charge. That's our call. Continuing, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Again, it's an example thing. A church will never rise higher than its leadership. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again. It's interesting that 90% of the names on the walls of the catacombs in Rome are those of slaves or ex-slaves. The Christians that mark their names in the catacombs, 90% of those names were servants, slaves. But uh, obedient to their own masters and and to please them well in all things, not answering in. You know, it's going that extra mile from the heart. That's what Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 7 emphasizes. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh. You know, we don't tend to relate to this because we aren't in a slave economy. But yes, we, yet we really are. It's, refer, it's referring to bosses. We're in economic slavery, worse than they were, by the way. I'll come back to that. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Whoa, wait a minute. That means an employee that's a Christian owes his master, his boss, singleness of heart as unto Christ. You know, the common thought in, in our world today is you owe your boss 60 minutes for every hour paid. No more. Not if you're a Christian. In a Christian, you are your boss's fiduciary. That's not required of employees. It is required of managers and directors, but not of normal employees, unless she's a Christian. In singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. Not with eye service, as men pleases, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. How many of us are really faithful to that? It's pleasant to discover here and there some that are, but most of us are not. Obedience to masters according to the flesh, physical and mental, not spiritual of the conscience. What does Paul mean here? Your boss is what he means. In singleness of heart, 60 minutes for each hour paid, and as a fiduciary, as unto Christ, to a Christian, there's no distinction here between secular and sacred. A few notes on slavery. You know, almost half of over the 100 million people of the Roman Empire were slaves. That's what was so, such genius by Constantine when he 
he brought them out of the catacombs. The New Testament does not condemn slavery as such. Every true believer is a bond slave, a doulos of Christ. The word Coeur d'Alene, where we live, is the heart of the all, that is, heart of the bond slave, interestingly enough. New Testament has more to say to slaves than it does kings. Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth made an interesting, she said she was saved by an M. And she was referring to 1 Corinthians 1.26. Not many wise, not many noble are called. Didn't say not any, said not many. She said she was saved by an M. See, Paul was careful not to confuse the social system with the spiritual order within the church. Two different things. You know, in the feudal system, the peasants of the Middle Ages owed their landowners 25% of the fruits of their labors. They were slaves. Today, we work until July before we earn for ourselves. We pay over 60% of our income to our federal, state, municipal, and other taxes. So it's an interesting contrast. You say, we're not slaves. Yes, we are. We're economic slaves, indeed. Let's talk a little bit about conduct. This, this whole uh, part of Titus is on conduct. Let's use the, what do we mean by faithful? What do we mean by faithful? These are, from, these are from the courts. Firmly adhering to duty, of true fidelity, loyal, true to allegiance, constant in the performance of duties or services, true to one's word, honest and loyal. Seems straightforward. That's what it means. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. That's his primary commitment, is to be faithful, to be loyal, to be honest. What is a fiduciary? I've used that word before. That's what the word koinias means. It's the, relate, it's the relation existing when one person justifiably reposes confidence, faith, reliance in another whose aid, advice, and protection is sought in some matter. The relation existing when good conscience requires one to act at all times for the sole benefit and interests of the another with the loyalty to those interests. The relation by law existing between certain classes of persons as confidential advisors and the one advised, ex executors, administrators, legatees, heirs, corporate directors, officers. This is doctor-patient, uh, client, you know, uh, 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 attorney-client, that sort of thing. Fiduciary. What do we mean by fraud? We use that term a lot. That's the intentional deception to cause a person to yield property or some lawful right. What is embezzlement? How is it different from that? That's the actual theft or act of fraudulently, fraudulently appropriating money or goods entrusted to one's care and management. Embezzlement is a breach of stewardship, isn't it? Larceny, we use that term, what does it really mean? Theft, the act of taking or carrying away goods or personal property another without his consent and with the intention of depriving him of it. Interesting. Then there's a group here that often not, not used except by specialists, misfeasance, wrongdoing, a deed, a trespass, specifically the doing of a lawful act in an unlawful manner so that there is an infringement on the rights of another or others. That's misfeasance. Malfeasance is a little worse. That's evil doing. Misconduct, the commission of some act which is positively unlawful. Wrongful conduct that affects, interrupts, or interferes with the performance of official duties. Nonfeasance. You've got misfeasance, malfeasance, and nonfeasance, the big three. Nonfeasance is the failure to perform a duty and omission of an act which a person ought to do. So you've got sins of commission, both deliberate and, and, and careless, and then you've, of course, got nonfeasance where you fail to do something. And, of course, conspiracy is pretty... Frequent in our language, a planning or acting together secretly, especially for an unlawful or harmful purpose. What are the requirements of a fiduciary? It's interesting to hear this because this is, 
It's I, I, my biggest adjustment, having gone from the boardroom world for 30 years into professional Christianity, is the breach of fiduciary duty that's rampant. Uh, in, in 30 years, in 12, being on the 12 public boards, in 30 years, only once did we have to remove someone for breach of fiduciary duty. In the first 10 years of being in the professional ministry, we had to do it three times. What do we mean by, what is a fiduciary? Many forms of conduct permissible in a workaday world for those acting at arm's length are forbidden to those bound by fiduciary ties. A trustee is held to something stricter than the morals of the marketplace. Not honesty alone, but the punctilio of honor, the most sensitive, is then the standard of behavior. As to this, there was, has developed a tradition that is unbending and inveterate. Uncompromising rigidity has been the attitude of the courts of equity when petitioned to, un, to undermine the rule of undivided loyalty by disintegrating the erosion of particular exceptions. Only thus has the level of conduct for fiduciaries been kept at a level higher than that trodden by the crowd. It's amazing to me how many men on the Christian world, many people are on boards of directors of ministries, they just are untrained. They don't realize they're fiduciaries. Many people that are managers of an enterprise don't realize they are no longer just employees, they are fiduciaries of that enterprise. And they owe them a higher sense of loyalty. That's what this is all about. This is from uh, uh, the, the Chief Justice of Supreme Court. A director of a corporation is in the position of fiduciary will not be permitted to improperly profit at the expense of his corporation. Undivided loyalty will ever be insisted upon Personal gain will ever be uh, personal gain will be denied to a director when it comes uh, because it he has taken a position adverse to or in conflict with the best interests of the corporation. Fiduciary relationship imposes a duty to act in accordance with the highest standards which a man of finest sense of honor might impose upon himself. Board meetings we've had uh, you have, if you got Christians in your board meetings you'll discover that the gossip mill will run right after the meeting. They do not preserve the 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 confidentiality of those meetings, etc. While there is a lofty moral ideal implicit in this rule, it actually accomplishes a practical beneficial purpose. It recognizes the frailty of human nature. It realizes that where a man's immediate fortunes are concerned, he may sometimes be subject to a blindness, often intuitive and compulsive. This rule is designed, on the one hand, to prevent clouded conception of fidelity and a moral indifference that blurs the vision, and on the other hand, to stimulate the most luminous critical sense and the finest exercise of judgment uncontaminated by the dross of prejudice or divided allegiance or of self-interest. Again, voice of the courts. Well, enough. So let's come back to Titus, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior in all things. In other words, not stealing. We'll take a look at that when we get to Philemon and talk about Anesimus and so on. Showing all good fidelity. And this implies the fiduciary role of employees. And the word adorn, adorn the doctrine. What do you mean? That's cosmeo, to bring order out of chaos. Put in order, arrange, make ready, pre prepare, to ornament. It's the same word from which we get cosmetics, by the way, cosmeo. <laughs> For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. That's grace in three tenses. You know, it's interesting. If you understand salvation in three tenses, you'll understand justification, sanctification, glorification, past, present, future. Grace has three tenses. Hath appeared. Grace of God hath appeared to all men. That's past tense. He hath appeared. He's made his appearance. Teaching us. That's continuous, present tense. And looking for the blessed hope. 
the future tense. That'll, the, the, the past tense is verse 11 of Titus 2. The present tense will be verse 12 of Titus 2. And the future tense will be verse 13 of Titus 2. Past, present, future tenses of grace. We have the past tense here that hath appeared, teaching us, present tense, denying all godliness and worldly lusts that we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. God is not trying to reform the world. He's redeeming those out of the world who accept Christ. What do you mean by redeemed? To set free by paying a price. We were all slaves and we could not set ourselves free. He gave himself as a ransom to free us from these consequences. So I'm as good as the next person. Strike one. Not good enough. I'm trying to do better. Strike two. Well, I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> Strike three. No, we can't do it. It took nothing less than the death of Christ to free us from the bondage that we were in. And that brings us to the future tense, looking for that blessed hope. Titus 2.13, that's where this term, the blessed hope, comes from. Looking for that blessed hope. What is the blessed hope? We use that phrase a lot. Specifically, it's the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. There's only one definite article, by the way, in the Greek. It's not the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's really the great God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. But His appearing... The blessed hope. When you use that term, the blessed hope, and a lot of people do not realize we're speaking a prophetic anticipation of the second coming. The very next event in the prophetic scenario, the rapture of the church, is the blessed hope. Don't ever apologize for your commitment to Bible prophecy. Hang it on Titus 2.13. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Give himself that he might redeem us from all iniquity, all lawlessness, to purify, that is sanctify. Not only separation from sin, but devotion to God is the thought here. A peculiar people. Well, we, I think all of us are peculiar people, but that's what it's really talking about, is a special people for his possession, what's implied there. And uh, to reform, that's to change attitudes, appetites, ambitions, and actions. These things speak, exhort, and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. That's Paul instructing his protege, Titus. All authority. Remember the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Taking the authority of the king. If you're going to take the authority of the king, take the authority of the king. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. That doesn't have, hasn't much to do with vocabulary. It has to do with ambassadorship. You have, you take, you have the authority to present his message. Okay, we're down to the climax of chapter 3, perform good works. You know, Paul and James were not at odds. Many people think they didn't agree. No, they were not in disagreement. Both emphasized that faith without evidentiary works is dead. Paul does too. A saving faith produces goodly, a goodly life. That was what James emphasized. Paul was not. Many people think they're opposed. They just don't understand that they both, in reality, are saying the same thing, but for different sides of the fence. Faith alone saves, but faith that saves is not alone. Calvin's one of his better lines, I think. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. Subjection to authority. Subjection to the office, not the person. 
Cooperation in those matters involving the whole community especially. A Christian is a law-abiding person in the secular sense. Our heavenly citizenship does not absolve us from responsibility as citizens on earth. Christians vote if they're good Christians. That's your mandate. That's your responsibility. To speak evil of no man, be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. We're not malign no man. You know, it's interesting how many people are in counterculture ministries that fail to make the careful discernment that Walter Martin used to. When Walter Martin was in that ministry, he, made very, he was very careful to take the published statements of a group and compare it to what the Bible says. But he never attacked the persons. There may be a rare exception here and there, but he, he tried to be very diligent in that regard. So this idea of maligning no man should inspire, especially people who publish information, journalists and whatever, and public, and pa public platforms. Not to repeat gossip. And I'm going to restrain myself from charging down my usual tangent path here on the most you know, painful sin, on gossip. But some people will believe anything if it's whispered to you. A secret is something you tell one person at a time, right? <laughs> For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceiving, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. I won't ask for a show of hands, but my, my hand would be up. We were come from a bad past. All of us do. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. And by the way, one of the best examples of this is Mephibosheth. He was the lame son of Jonathan. And he, uh, and when, and when he gets discovered by David, he's treated as David's own at the palace table in 2 Samuel 9. Very interesting example of just extending the grace and hospitality. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. We didn't earn it. It was his mercy. He, by his mercy he saved us. There's another according to, by the way. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. The washing here speaks of the Old Testament labor, in a sense, and Paul is relating this cleansing experience to the Word of God. In other words, the washing of the labor, he's relating to the, you know, washing, washing of the water by the Word, he says in Ephesians. He's using an Old Testament idiom here. The labor of the Old Testament for washing appears in Revelation as a glassy sea that they stand upon. See, here we wash, in the, we wash ourselves in the Word, there will be standing on it. Yes, this is a deliberate connotative transfer. We would use the term pun. It's puns are usually used for, for humor. This is a connotative transfer between this use and Revelation's glassy sea that's deliberate. Yes, the Holy Spirit deals in puns. It's, it's good. That's, that's one of the great tragedies of, of paraphrases. You always want to deal with a, as good a translation as you can find, not a paraphrase. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. You're familiar with John 3. Moving back to Titus 3, 5. Which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. In Ephesians, Paul says a similar thing. He says, He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Indeed. That being justified by his grace, we should be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Washed, made new, and now also justified. 
Heirs of God? That's pretty wild. And this, of course, ties to the blessed hope. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that I affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. We want to do that, though, remembering at the same time, Isaiah 64, 6, that our righteousness is as filthy rags, or more precise in the Hebrew, as used menstrual cloths, to be a little more graphic. Yes, we should seek good work, but it should remember at best, we're still pretty bad news. Yet the only evidence to the unsaved world was that we belong to God, and we, don't, we manifest that by our godly lives. That's the only evidence they have. And as a friend of mine likes to highlight, they're tired of hearing extraordinary claims from ordinary lives. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. Debates, to my way of thinking at least, debates have never led anyone to the Lord. Warren Wearsby even suggests that professed Christians who like to argue about the Bible are usually covering up some sin in their lives, are very insecure, and are unusually unhappy at home or at work. That's Warren Wiersbe, who I respect very highly as a commentator. That was his, you know, candid perspective. Doesn't mean he's right, but it's interesting perspective. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject. Now, the word heretic is one who causes divisions, usually self-willed, given to works of the flesh knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth and being condemned of himself. Then now he finishes up with some personal remarks. When I shall send Artemis uh, unto thee, or Tychicus, be diligent to come unto me to Nicopolis, for I have determined there to winter. Artemis is probably one of the 70 disciples, they believe, and the bishop of Lystra. Um, Tychicus was with Paul in his first Roman imprisonment, and he carried Paul's epistles to the Ephesians and Colossians and then to Philemon. So he's a, a messenger friend, if you will. Either one of these would replace Titus on Crete in order that Titus could join Paul at Nicopolis, is the thought here. Okay. Bring Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey diligently, that nothing be wanting unto them. Zenos is a contracted form of Zenodorus, which is a Jewish scribe learned in the Hebrew laws, all we know about him. It's possible that Zenos and Apollos carried this letter to Titus. That's, that's an inference that some people draw. Apollos is an interesting guy. Apollonius or Apollodorus, he's an Alexandrian Jew. Eloquent or learned and mighty in the scriptures, we're told. And he, it was in Alexandria that uh, the entire Old Testament was translated into Greek, the Septuagint. It was at his birthplace. Initially, he only understood the baptism of John. He was very limited. But it was Achilla and Priscilla that corrected him and, and, and expounded him the scriptures in Acts 18. So it's a compliment that he was teachable. He was open to having these people correct his perspective. So he had new light. And he, went, he went on to Achaia, watering the seed that Paul had previously planted there. And he had a deep knowledge of the Old Testament, gave him a special power with the Jews. He was so popular in Corinth that they abused his name, made him sort of a, a, a watchword. I'm of, of Apollos. And Paul condemned their party spirit. He commends Apollos and writes that he had greatly desired that Brother Apollos had come unto the Corinthians. But Apollos 
declined to go because he didn't want to feed this, this uh, personally oriented popularity. He didn't, he didn't want to give any handle to the party's zeal, in effect. And he wanted to wait till the danger of that passed away, interestingly enough. And Jerome states that Apollos remained in Crete until he heard the divisions at Corinth had been healed by Paul's epistle. Then he went and became a bishop there in Corinth. And Apollos' main excellency is a builder-up rather than a founder of churches. And his humility and teachableness, of course, is a major compliment to him. And so, and let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses that they be not unfruitful. Learn. What do you mean by learn? Modifying behavior. Learning is the modification of behavior. You need to make, it comes by efforts to modify behavior. All that are with me, salute thee, greet them that love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. This is Paul's unique signature salutation. Grace be with you all. He's the only epistle writer in the New Testament that uses the word grace in a closing salutation. It's only used by one other uh, place, and that's by Luke uh, in a in a, in a, or no, it's by Peter in a, in a, in a non-salutation uh, uh, occasion. And then a final closing thing, it's in the text, it was written, to Titus ordained the first bishop of the church in the Cretans from Nicopolis of Macedonia. For our next session, study this little letter called Philemon, the letter to Philemon. And ask yourself, what does it teach us, beside the local issue, what does it teach us about intercession? What lessons are there in this little, little short letter for us personally? Very enriching little letter. So let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for this letter of encouragement and instruction, especially in our day as we continually find ourselves involved, especially in small groups. Help us to, to cling to sound doctrine at the same time, facilitate the raising of new leadership as we look to the blessed hope, the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Titus. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, when we begin a new series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.